bullies, braggarts, tyrants and despots. Men of brute strength, leaders with a taste of power, the respected headmen treated with reverence for their unsurpassable knowledge, their talent for the hunt, their sharp and convincing tongue, their photographic memories, who decide, after a brief taste of megalomania, to try their hands at domination. In the schoolyard, in the Reichstag, in the office, in the forest, through greed, hubris, naivety, or psychopathy. Kings, chiefs, alphas, captains, and kingpins. Sometimes the despotic moment is brief and benevolence returns, wise at times and foolish at others. Sometimes status by competence is superseded by the magnetic pull of power. What's clear is that it's within our nature to dominate. There's a remarkable and culturally universal drive for control in human nature. For Thomas Hobbes, commenting on the English Civil War and the devastating wars of religion across Europe, the will to dominate was so strong that without the power of a benevolent king aware of his duty, life would descend into a war of all against all. But while we see small signs of domination everywhere, we also see the will to protest. The ultimatum game. Two people are given a sum of money. Player one decides how it's split. If player two rejects the division, neither party receives the money. Rational self-interest supposes that player two accepts any amount, anything being better than nothing. Statistically, player two rejects less than 20%. Instances of air rage are four times more likely on a flight with a first-class section. Revolution, rebellion, outrage, protest. It takes an unprecedented level of policing to maintain the inequalities of modern capitalism. What does this tell us? That we're bitter and resentful of the dominant? That we're concerned with status? That we complain that it's just not fair? Is it simply about power? As well as having a universal capacity for domination, we have the enduring desire for rebellion. In fact, compared with any other species, we exhibit a remarkable range of political capabilities. We can be anything from oppressively despotic to complexly democratic to selflessly egalitarian. So what's going on? Let's go on a quick tour. Before civilization, as we roamed in the forest and hunted across the plains, we were, anthropologists and archaeologists have discovered, 
resolutely and obsessively egalitarian. Everyone participated in decision-making, valued modesty, had an intolerance for domination and an insuppressible love of freedom. Bands and tribes acting in this way have been found on every continent, so can't be explained by local historical development. Something universal is going on. Anthropologist Christopher Boehm has argued that hunter-gatherers have a rationalistic approach to egalitarianism that he labels a reverse domination hierarchy, based on the simple principle that no one person can dominate an entire community. Boehm has surveyed accounts of hunter-gatherers and found that they maintained moral communities that emphasise egalitarianism and used communal sanctions and levelling mechanisms to keep potential upstarts in their place. They reverse the flow of hierarchical power from the bully to the majority. A leader, it's almost universally found, should be primus inter paris, a first amongst equals. Remarking on Alaskan Eskimos in 1922, for example, the anthropologist Diamond Jenness remarked that every man in his eyes has the same rights and the same privileges as every other man in the community. One may be a better hunter, or a more skillful dancer, or have a greater control over the spiritual world, but this does not make him more than one member of a group in which all are free and theoretically equal. Hobbes thought that in a state of nature we had a right to anything, and that the state of nature had no man-made laws, but he said we quickly discovered that there were laws of nature that compelled us to seek peace if peace was an option. Self-preservation was the first law of nature. Hobbes also noticed that we had a strange type of equality that each had the strength and the intelligence to kill another, that even Hercules could be outnumbered, and that even the wisest could be conspired against. Tribes like the Hazda and the Kung Bushmen of Africa and the Ukku of the Arctic have been known to execute not only murderers, but often those that are too aggressive. In fact, being a leader in many cultures is well known to be fraught with dangers. Aggression and domination are prohibited and generosity is valued above all else. The leaders of the Andaman Islands should display generosity, kindness and freedom from bad temper. For the Kung, leaders should not be arrogant, boastful, overbearing or risk not only demotion but ostracism from the tribe. Anthropologist Richard Lee reported conversations with the Kung who said, Say that a man has been hunting. He must not come home and announce like a braggart, I have killed a big one in the bush. He must first sit down in silence until I or someone else comes up to his fire and asks, What did you see today? He replies quietly, Ah, oh, I'm no good for hunting. I saw nothing at all. Maybe just a tiny one. Then I smile to myself because I now know he has killed something big. Self-effacing humility is fundamental to the Kung. When a young man kills much meat, he comes to think of himself as a chief or a big man and he thinks of the rest of us as his servants or inferiors. We can't accept this. 
we refuse one who boasts, for someday his pride will make him kill somebody, so we always speak of his meat as worthless. In this way we cool his heart and make him gentle. They use phrases like, you mean to say that you've dragged us all the way out here to make us cart home your pile of bones? Lee concluded that for the Kung, egalitarianism is not simply the absence of a headman and other authority figures, but a positive insistence on the essential equality of all people and a refusal to bow to the authority of others, a sentiment expressed in the statement, of course we have headmen, each of us is headman over himself. In the Congo Basin, the Pygmies say that the forest is the chief, the lawgiver, the leader, and the final arbitrator. In 1952, the anthropologist Audrey Butts described the Maasai and the Nua of Africa. She said, Each determines to go his own way as much as possible, has a hatred of submission, and is ready to defend himself and his property from the inroads of others. They are thus self-reliant, brave fighters, turbulent and aggressive, and are extremely conservative in their aversion to innovation and interference. Anthropologist Richard Slobodin described the kitchen of North America as recruiting their leaders to be shrewd, have drive and a touch of ruthlessness, but also display generosity and a concern for the common will. No evidence of sustained warfare has been found in archaeological evidence of hunter-gatherer communities for 95% of our history. It took civilization, agriculture, farming, the division of labour, the rise of the church, the need for leadership for hunter-gatherers, organised egalitarianly for 190,000 years to give away the natural desire for liberty in return for promises of security, wealth and peace. During the Enlightenment, we began to remember what was once natural, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. The liberal philosopher John Locke made the case that we were equal because we were each made by the same God, so to hurt another person, to limit their life and liberty, was to irrationally rebel against your own creator's will. Hobbes said that a law of nature is a precept or a general rule found out by reason by which man is forbidden to do that which is destructive of his own life. But it was Proudhon that argued that morality and justice were derived from the rational calculations of individuals coming freely together into groups. He said that, if the idea that we form of justice and rights is ill-defined, if it's imperfect or even false, it's clear that all our legislative applications will be wrong, our institutions vicious, our politics erroneous, and consequently there will be disorder and chaos. Why do we organise our social arrangements around conceptions of right, of correctness, of morality? Proudhon noticed that 
Justice is the central star which governs society, the pole around which the political revolves, the principal and regulator of all transactions. Nothing takes place between men save in the name of right, nothing without the invocation of justice. Justice, equality, equation, equilibrium and harmony are all synonymous. Illustrating perfectly, without knowing it himself, what millennia of hunter-gatherers knew instinctively, Proudhon wrote that it's by our reflective and reasoning powers with which we seem to be exclusively endowed that we know that it's injurious first to others and then to ourselves to resist the social instinct which governs us and which we call justice. It's our reason which teaches us that the selfish man, the robber, the murderer, in a word, the traitor to society, sins against nature and is guilty with respect to others and himself. Boehm calls egalitarian foragers and tribes practical political philosophers. Sociologist Enrico Quarantelli has studied natural disasters and found that time and time again, social bonds, altruism and cooperation increase after devastation to communities. Cooperation, rather than self-interest, is the human trait that emerges again and again under these kinds of conditions. In 1940, Gunter Wagner visited the Kavarondu Bantu tribes of Kenya. He said that leaders must be known for their kindness and honesty, must be past the age of sexual desire, must be someone who can feed the people. In short, he must be a person without any failures and blemishes in the record of his past and present life. The Nambiquara of Brazil have headmen that always share their surplus with the tribe. Generosity is expected of any new chief. The Wape of Papua New Guinea rotate jobs between them and use gambling to redistribute any unequal distributions of wealth. For the modern Semai of Malaysia, it's considered punan or taboo to calculate the value of gifts. We find similar practices throughout many hunter-gatherer and historic cultures. Columbus was amazed that the indigenous people of the Americas seemed to have no conception of property. Anthropologist William Mitchell has complained that many egalitarian societies have been reported in Malaysia, but so thoroughgoing is the absence of theoretical interest in them that they are rarely identified in general discussions of socio-political organisation. The majority, through simple calculation and natural reason, know that their own number is able to outpower any would-be startup. Boehm says that because of the logic of the reverse dominance hierarchy, it's the rank and file who are on top, and the would-be alphas who remain under their thumbs. Across the globe and throughout history, the majority have kept the powerful in check with some simple cultural tools. Ostracism, gossiping and ridicule. Anthropologist Jean Briggs was ostracised when she displayed anger and emotion in front of the Utku in the Arctic. The Utku famously reject displays of anger, raising their children without it. Briggs even called her book Never in Anger. 
the Kahuku Gama of Papua New Guinea, according to Kenneth Reed, respond to any act of compulsion with irritation. If it seems like a member of the group is becoming a big or strong man, then they'll never become a leader. Leadership requires a feeling for the opinion of others, self-control, and the ability to see different points of view. The anger of Papua New Guinea see the European man as a kamongo, a swaggering, self-conceited braggart, a personality type that's insulting to anger society. Bowen concludes that the egalitarian approach to political life seems all but invincible. As long as people were foraging in mobile hunter-gatherers, it appears that they managed to stay true to their egalitarian ethos. It seems then that our impulse towards equality is a naturally occurring universal throughout history. It's a simple calculation of power, but that's not all it is. We're concerned, as a social species, in our deepest psychology with status, to give away our freedom to decide for ourselves, to permanently let another have control over a part of our liberty, is a dangerous bargain to make. To let someone more powerful influence the environment around us, the people, and limit our options is always made with caution. The economist Paul Krugman has written that extreme concentration of income is incompatible with real democracy. Can anyone seriously deny that our political system is being warped by the influence of big money and that the warping is getting worse as the wealth of the few grows even larger? Social capital is currency, a zero-sum game, and the more the powerful have, the less the powerless have. Status is required to contribute to the conversation. When we have no status, we can feel like we're being judged, used, or ignored. A lack of status is a lack of control. A lack of control is stressful. Stress kills. When our stress system triggers, we're biologically preparing ourselves to do one thing. Fight. Physically. Ethics hitting the body. Stress hormones are released, adrenaline and cortisol, which unlock glucose, proteins and fat in cells which are flushed into the bloodstream to be used as energy. Everything gets turned up, heart, lungs, oxygen supply. Inflammation is triggered as tissue is flooded with immunity cells ready to kill anything invading. All of this energy is being redirected from healthy normal functioning, overdoing the system, wearing it down. The immune system attacks its own body because it doesn't know what's invading and what's healthy. Inequality kills. We crave status as much as we crave not being poor. So do we have a natural impulse towards equality? Well, what is human nature? To have biological drives, built-in needs, a genetic preparation, or an innate disposition to act in a certain way, a socio-biology, a biogrammar, that, by following the logic of majority power, leads to an ethos of consensus building over dictatorship, freedom over domination, individual rights over centralised control. Thank you as always to these wonderful patrons. 
If you want to support the channel, you can do so through the link in the description below for as little as a dollar per month uh, and get access to scripts and early access videos in the Discord server. Coming up next, a look at the history of individual responsibility. It's going to be a good one, so hit subscribe for that, hit like, hit share, and I'll see you next time.